0: Ecclesiastes 12, 9 to 14, please follow along as I read. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books, there is no end, and much study is a weariness to the flesh. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether, with either, whether good or evil. There's a different title in your worship guide, but I've edited it to a new title as I've thought through the point of the passage, and I've entitled this message, The Shepherd Behind the Preacher. The Shepherd Behind the Preacher. When you think of great works of literature um, or even great authors themselves, you could try to ask yourself the question, what's behind this book? What's behind this author's life? Why did they write this way? Why did they write about this topic? What inspired them? What drove them? What motivated them? What fueled them? What gave them their impetus to write this book or these works? You could look at someone like Mark Twain and say, why did he write the way he did? Or Charlotte Bronte, why did she write what she wrote? Scott Fitzgerald, the troubled mind that he had, what was behind his writings? Agatha Christie, Homer, why did they write like they did? Why did they write about the subjects they wrote about? What motivated them? Who were they inside that led to them putting those words on paper that we've read and understood, are puzzled by, helped by? What's behind all this? It's an interesting study to get into the minds of famous authors. Sometimes it's a dark study. But when I think about the book of Ecclesiastes and when you think about the book of Ecclesiastes, it's very closely connected to its author, isn't it? Solomon had an interesting life to say the least. And we've seen all throughout, especially at the beginning of the book, Solomon give his reasons for writing. He didn't want his readers to fail to learn from his example. He really made many mistakes, committed many sins, and wrote at the end of his life a book for us to learn from. You almost can... Read Solomon and think of him begging you to not make the mistakes that he made. I remember a spiritual mentor of mine early in my Christian life saying, I want to talk to you about all the mistakes I've made because I don't want you to make them. And it really seems to be that Solomon's kind of doing the same thing. I've tried to please myself with wealth, with wisdom, with women. I've tried to please myself and nothing satisfies Nothing satisfies, learn from me. He refers to his son a number of times in this book, as he does even more so in the book of Proverbs. He wants his son, he wants his followers, he wants people in his kingdom, he wants those who would read his words to benefit from his wisdom. And so on one level, you can say that the purpose behind Solomon's writing is so that we would benefit from his wisdom. We would learn from the lessons that he often failed to learn, but then later on in life maybe did learn. So in one sense, there's a desire of Solomon to teach people so they don't make his mistakes. But in another sense, and this passage introduces us to that other sense, this book is about God inspiring Solomon to write so that we would hear the warnings of God and also the delights of God that are offered to those who trust in his name. So, God is behind the pen of Solomon. God has guided Solomon. Again, you could ask the question, why did Solomon write? And we have a very Solomonic answer because he wanted people to learn from his mistakes. He wanted people to understand wisdom and what does not offer true satisfaction and what does offer true satisfaction. But in another sense, and we get it here in this passage, there's a shepherd behind the preacher. Solomon refers to himself early on in the book as the preacher. So we know of the preacher as we've gone through the book of Ecclesiastes, but here we're introduced for the first time to God who's called the shepherd, and the shepherd is behind the preacher. So again, you could say that Solomon's got a lot of things for us to learn in Ecclesiastes, but you could also say God has a lot of things for us to learn through the book of Ecclesiastes and through the pen of Solomon. It's there in verse 11, The words of the wise are like goads, like nails firmly fixed or the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. Again, there's a shepherd behind the preacher. God himself is inspiring Solomon to write. Now, we use the word inspire, and we often mean like what motivates us, what gets us out of bed in the morning, what inspires us. A piece of music, a beautiful scenery some inner compulsion for success? What is it that inspires us? Biblically speaking, when we talk about the inspiration of scripture, that's not exactly what we're getting at. Not that God kind of put some classical music on for Solomon and oh man, I'm all of a sudden inspired to write. No, when you think of inspiration, think of words written by Solomon are actually breathed out by God. He's the one behind Solomon's writings. 2 Peter one 20 to 20-21 talks us about, to us about the inspiration of Scripture and how God would move men of God to write the Scriptures, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. This is bigger than just Solomon writing something here. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So yes, Solomon is the author of Ecclesiastes, and yes, God the shepherd is the author of Ecclesiastes. So in this concluding epilogue of the book, this conclusion of the book, we learn why Solomon wrote. Solomon wrote because God the shepherd wanted him to communicate certain truths to his readers, which we are. There's a shepherd behind the preacher. So as we wrap up, let's look at this outline for the final passage. Three final takeaways from our shepherd. Three final takeaways from our shepherd. And as we go through these points, they're going to sound familiar to you. Because Solomon, God, is kind of summing up the book here at the end. So these final takeaways are going to be takeaways that have been sprinkled all throughout the book. The first is that wisdom is meant to bring delight. The second is that wisdom can be painful. And third, wisdom is found in fearing God and keeping his commandments. So there's our outline. First, wisdom is meant to bring delight. Solomon sought to find words of delight, the book says. Let's look at verse 9. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. Solomon took sayings. Evidently, there were sayings that he wrote in Ecclesiastes that are that didn't originate with him took some sayings, took his own experiences, again, all under the guidance of God, took these sayings and arranged them the way he did with care. He didn't just, this isn't just a book of kind of random propositional truths. Even their order is intentional, meant to help. So the preacher known to us as Solomon taught his people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. Ecclesiastes is full of these, so is his book of Proverbs. He's written to us for our benefit. Even his arrangement is intentional. Verse 10, the preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. This is pretty insightful. There are a lot of people today that think the Bible is a claim to truth, and it is. It is true, God's revelation to us. But they often think of Christians as just thinking that they've got the truth and that's it. But there's more to these words of truth in the scriptures. These words of truth are meant to be a delight. And that's what people don't often understand about Christianity. The preacher sought to find words of not just truth, but words of delight. And uprightly, he wrote words of truth. The words of truth are meant to be our delight read through at some point Psalm 119 and notice the joy of the author in the truth of God's words read Jeremiah and read about the delight he had in God's words now that Solomon's talked about enjoyment coming from this book in a number of places 518 behold what I've seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him for this is his lot so one of Solomon's conclusions one of Solomon's goals for us as we read truth in Ecclesiastes is to have it be a delight to us I hope that you've got this throughout the book God is a God who wants us to be joyful. In this dark and difficult world, God tells us through the pen of Solomon, enjoy your meals together. Enjoy your bread, enjoy your wine, enjoy your work. Again, all of this sprinkled throughout the book and stated finally here in this final passage so that we get it. Nine, seven. Go Eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart. Nine, nine, enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he's given you under the sun. There is a call to joy in this book. Why? Because God is a God of joy. And so when God reveals himself through his word, his desire for us is that we would believe his word and find joy with what he tells us. Wisdom is meant to bring delight. Again, I referenced Psalm 119, but listen to verse 143. I think this kind of summarizes the book of Ecclesiastes in many ways. Listen to this verse. Trouble and anguish have found me out, but your commandments are my delight. I mean, isn't that Ecclesiastes? Ecclesiastes, a book that talks a lot about trouble and anguish. But that's not all it talks about, is it? But your commandments are my delight. There's joy to be had even when our soul does experience trouble and anguish. I think I mentioned this last week, but I will restate it again. In the Christian life, we can often go from one extreme to the other. So one extreme sometimes in Christianity is that it's the constant pep rally. Hey! How are the Christians doing today? Oh, great, wonderful. And you've got someone sitting in the congregation who just lost their child to death. Christianity is not a constant pep rally. One of the things that is a pet peeve of mine is when I do, to a, when I do a funeral or refer to a funeral and some well-meaning Christian interrupts me and tells me, no, 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 Christians have celebrations of life. We don't do funerals. We're not to be sad. No, Christians get sad too. Christians mourn the loss of loved ones. Our Lord did that. We don't need to hide that from the Christian experience or pretend that there's something wrong if you're sad. Life is hard. It's difficult. The Christian life is not one constant pep rally. But on the other extreme, you've, pe- you've got people that realize that and know that and kind of get frustrated by the, the pep rally Christianity, and so they swing the pendulum way to the opposite end, and now there's nothing to be happy about. Hey, how you doing? Oh, sackcloth and ashes. I'm so horrible. He's so horrible. She's so horrible. We're just sinners. There's nothing good in this world. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Yes, there is. There's plenty still good in this world. There's plenty of God's common grace to see all throughout the world. Go look at that couple getting married. God's common grace. Go look at those grandkids hopping up into grandpa's lap. Common grace, beauty, so much good. Look at what God's done for you in Christ. There are things to be joyful about. And so we want to be careful of kind of the extremes on the end of the spectrum. One, it's only joy all the time. That's not true. And one, it's never joy ever. That's not true either. I think Ecclesiastes gets us rightly thinking. Life is difficult. Life is hard. You might Hoard all your money and at the end of your life end up eating dinner alone in front of the television with your family all gone because you've pursued wealth and wisdom and riches more than you love them. And you might be sitting there eating in darkness all alone with anger in your heart. The Ecclesiastes says that. But Solomon also says all throughout enjoy this life God's given you, He's given you good gifts. He's a good God. It is a dark world, but there are also bright moments, bright spots, relationships to be had and enjoyed, friendships, food. Wisdom is meant to bring delight. So find delight in God's gifts and in Him as the giver of these gifts. There's a second takeaway from Ecclesiastes that our shepherd wants us to understand. It's this. Wisdom can be painful. Sometimes, the best things for us are things that make us uncomfortable, and we are a pleasure-loving society, and I'm not just talking about the people out there. We don't like discomfort. We don't like rebuke. We don't like correction, and oftentimes, we will shy away and run away from it when sometimes it's what's needed. The words of the wise, verse 11, are like goads, like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. I think these nails firmly fixed are the nails of the goad, the goad, the stick that a farmer would use to keep the cattle going the right way. Well, I think I'm just going to go to the right over here, nails in the side. Nope, I won't go to the right. I didn't like that. I think I'll just go to the left, the cow says. Nope, goad. Nails in the side. I think he wants me to go straight. There we go. That's, that's I don't know why cows talk like that, but that's how I picture cows talking. <coughs> but we understand agriculturally the purpose of a goad. And Solomon's saying, our shepherd is saying, sometimes God's words are like goads. They redirect us, and they're painful in the redirection, but they redirect us for good purposes, and Solomon's words have been doing that all through Ecclesiastes, haven't they? I referred to chapter 5 earlier. You can be selfish and hoard your wealth as you toil for the wind, and you'll find yourself one day eating in darkness with much vexation and sickness and anger. Or chapter 7, verse 2. It's better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. It's better for you to go to a funeral than it is for you to go to a party or a wedding. Well, I don't want to go to a funeral. I know, says Solomon. I didn't say it was more pleasurable to go to a funeral. I said better. Wisdom can be painful. Chapter 7, verse 3, sorrow is better than laughter. Well, I don't want to be sad. I want to laugh. I know. But sometimes it's better to go through sorrows. 7 5. It's better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. I don't want to hear the rebuke of the wise. I want to sing about merriment and pleasure. I know. But it's better to hear the rebuke of the wise. Verse 12, my son, beware of anything beyond these, these words of his, of making many books, there's no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. It's interesting here. In in our passage before us, 9 through 14, he's talking about the importance of his words that we've been studying, talking about the importance of the words of Ecclesiastes, the words of God. And Solomon warns his son about viewing these words as maybe just kind of the same as other words that his son might pursue. Yeah, I read the Bible. I also read Freud. I also listen to this guy's podcast. I listen to this lady teach on this, and I, I, I listen to this news outlet, and, and I kind of got all things going. I got the Bible, and I got all these things. Beware of thinking those are all on par with one another. Be very careful. My son, beware of anything beyond these. So what informs you? What informs your mind? What governs your thinking? Now, the, the Christian theologically true answer is, well, the Bible does. But let me ask you, is that really the practice in your life all the time? Is who you are more shaped by your favorite political podcaster Or is it actually the words of God? And these words can often, again, be painful. Training is often painful. You know this about any endeavor. Any endeavor that produces greatness will involve sacrifice and difficulty. There's a reason only a few achieve that endeavor, whatever it may be, because not everyone's willing to put in the work. Sometimes the words of God are difficult, but that's meant to be a blessing to us by the shepherd. You see, it's a good farmer that goads the cattle to go the right direction. Well, I don't want to do that to the cattle. I mean, I don't want to cause them any pain and discomfort. Guys, go wherever you want to go. Well, let's see how much the crop produces. Let's see how that works out for you. But when the cattle go the right way, there's an abundance of a crop. That's good. Remember what Paul said to Timothy right before he told him to preach the word in season and out of season. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness. So that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work reproof correction training that's good for us now again a lot of us know that in our heads amen we need that okay but how's it going when a spiritual leader or a friend says brother sister i think you're out of line here they're so many people to their own detriment that run away from conversations like that and will leave churches rather than be corrected personally. They will leave families rather than being corrected personally. They will leave friendships if someone says something that's critical of them. The words of the wise are like goads, like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd, God. So be careful of wanting to run away from pain and difficulty all the time. It's important for us to be shepherded by God's Word. Again, our society is a society that refuses to be corrected. You can't teach anybody anything, it seems, anymore. You can't say anybody's wrong or maybe you should rethink something. You can't say that. It's almost like a sin to say that. Who are you to tell me that? I'm just like you. I need correction too. They need instruction, education, but many Christians are following suit with what the society is doing. The society can't be corrected, and nowadays it seems like many Christians can't either. If a pastor or spiritual leader or mother or father brings correction, that's abuse. No, it's not, it's correction might be reproof. If a friend brings you correction or rebuke, that's harsh. No, it's just a correction. Wisdom can be painful and often is. We often learn best from mistakes. We often learn from correction. And that's why Solomon says this at the end, he's been correcting us all through. He's been making us uncomfortable all the way through. When he says it's better to go to a funeral than a party, that doesn't make us comfortable. I'd rather go to a party. But how important is it to learn from difficult things? So, let me ask you, when's the last time the Bible corrected you and you actually changed by the grace of God? When's the last time the Bible taught you, you're not thinking rightly about this? When's the last time that happened? I hope it happens. How has the book of Ecclesiastes changed you? I hope it has. What insights has it given, given you? I would encourage you anytime you study a book, whether it's through the Gospel of John with your small group, whether it's on a Sunday morning, the book that we're going through, whether it's your own personal study time, ask God not just to, not just to give you more information but to give you transformation. God. Use your word to change me, to grow me, to help me, to make me more like your son. That's the goal here. The, the words are like goads for a purpose. I, I just, I'll give you a little insight into my own time in Ecclesiastes, and maybe this is, serves as maybe an example to you, because I need this book as well as you. I've come away with two great encouragements, two two great helps from this book personally. One, to delight in everyday things. I find that so much of my life is about things I want to see happen in this church, and my family, and friends, and whatever it may be. I want this one day. Wouldn't it be great if this happened? And sometimes we're so fixated on doing this so that this happens that we forget to just literally stop and smell the roses. God's good. Look what I have, look what He's done, look, look at His grace, and to enjoy those things as worship to Him, say, you are good. That This book has helped me in that regard quite a bit. I hope I'm more thankful because of the book of Ecclesiastes, more thankful for little things. Also, this book has reminded me, it's a much-needed reminder about the importance of fearing God. I'll say a little bit more about that here in a moment at the end. Being in awe of God, revering Him for who He is, taking all of His characteristics, all of His attributes, and being in awe, spending time thinking about those things, talking to Him about those things, singing to Him about those things, being in awe of who He is. This book has helped me with my own worship. My own prayer time has changed because of this book. Well, wasn't your part-time great before? I mean, you're a pastor. Well, not what it is now. I'm like you, I need help, and this book has done that. So, let me ask you, what is it about this book that has helped? How has this book corrected, redirected, guided? I hope you approach the Scriptures that way. There's a third takeaway that our shepherd wants us to grab onto. It's found in verses 13 to 14. Wisdom is found in fearing God And keeping his commandments. In a book offering wisdom in a biblical genre, a set of books called wisdom literature, here is the crowning piece of wisdom. Fear God and keep his commandments. I mean, you can take all the pages of Proverbs, all the pages of Job, all of its chapters, 42 of them, all of the pages of Ecclesiastes, Take the Song of Solomon. Take the wisdom found in the Psalms. Take all of those pages and say what overarches all of those, the overarching wisdom of all of those is fear God and keep his commandments. And that's why he says that here at the very end of the book. The end of the matter. All has been heard. I'm done writing. What's your response? Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man, the whole duty. Not so much this is your obligation, but this is what you were created for is the idea. Fear God, keep His commandments, for this is what it means to be truly human. You could say it that way. You want to be fully alive? Fear God, keep His commandments. You want to enjoy walking with God? Fear God. Keep his commandments. That's everything. This has been a theme all throughout. Again, 5-7, God is the one you must fear. 7-18, the one who fears God will escape trouble. 8-12, I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him. Now, A few years ago, Pastor Jason preached a message that I would encourage you to go listen to again on the fear of the Lord and a right understanding of that. I, at the beginning of the book of Ecclesiastes, talked about the importance of understanding what fearing God rightly means and what it doesn't mean. And because I'm forgetful and because you might be as well, I want to for a few brief moments clarify what the fear of the Lord is because it's so important. The number one command in all the Scriptures is don't be afraid. And yet we're told all throughout the book of Ecclesiastes and also the Old Testament and also in the New Testament to fear God. So what's up with that? So I want to help you with that because if this is the final piece of wisdom, the overarching piece of wisdom, fear God and keep his commandments, we should know what that means. So again, the fear of the Lord is often misunderstood and therefore ignored. Ah, I I don't like hearing that I like thinking of God as shepherd friend the Holy Spirit as comforter Christ and the Father as keeper I don't like thinking about fearing and being afraid of a God so when there are numerous exhortations to fear God in the scriptures we'll just kind of go over them like some of you go over speed bumps, just fast and keep going. That's what we do with the fear of God. Eh, Go through it. uh. But if it's such a frequent expression, we need to understand it. Again, one of the most frequent commands in Scripture is not to fear. 1 John 4, there's no fear in love. Perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment. And wherever fear is, not being uh, wherever fear is, it's not being perfected in love. So fear involves punishment, and we're not going to be punished because of what Christ has done. So if I'm not supposed to fear God in that way, why is this telling me to fear God? Again, in Ecclesiastes and a number of other places, we're told to fear Him. So it's important to highlight at this point, the Scriptures speak of two kinds of fear, okay? Two kinds of fear. The first kind of fear is the wrong kind of fear. Remember what James said? Even the demons believe. They know God. They know who God is. They understand him even better than we do to a degree. They know what he's like. Read the Gospel of Mark. They call him son of God before any people do. The demons believe in God, and they shudder. They're fearful. They're afraid. And that fear does not draw them to him. It draws them away from him. There's a wrong fear of God. Adam sins in the garden after communing with God, His regular practice was to commune with God. Now he sins, and God's walking in the garden. What does Adam do? Does he run to God because he knows God is good? No, he runs away from God. That's the wrong fear of God. Now the Scriptures speak of a right fear of God. A trembling and an awe that desires more that goes to him. I want you to turn to Jeremiah 33. This is a passage to highlight, underline, and if you think somehow that's a bad thing to do to your Bibles, then write it down in your own, pen, in your own hand and highlight it and underline it, okay? Jeremiah 33, 8 to 9. Just to set this up for you while you're turning. Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, weeping over the situation of Jerusalem sweeping over God's people and their own rebellion, a dark book at the beginning, a sad book at the beginning. And then there's this promise in verse, in chapter 31, about a new covenant one day, a new relationship that God's going to have with his people. Some new things are going to happen one day. And chapter 33 is fleshing that out all the more. Notice what chapter 33 says, verse 8. Jeremiah 33, 8. I will cleanse them From all the guilt of their sin against me. What a great promise. And I will forgive all the guilt of their sin and rebellion against me. And this city shall be to me a name of joy, a praise and a glory before all the nations of the earth who shall hear of all the good that I do for them. They shall fear and tremble because of all the good and all the prosperity I provide for it. Do you get that? They shall fear and tremble because of how good God is to them. Not because they fear his judgment. But there's an awe and a reverence and a trembling because of how good God is. That's what Solomon means when he talks about fearing the Lord. A trembling and an awe because of how good he is. Adam moved away from God because he knew how powerful God was What he didn't do is move to God because of how gracious God was also. We sometimes can move away from God. We know he's judge. We know he's powerful. We know he's creator. He's sovereign. He's in control. We've rebelled, and there's a temptation to move from him. And Solomon's saying, don't move from him. God is gracious and a savior and is for your joy and delight. So be in awe and move toward him. That's the fear of the Lord that the Scriptures call us to. Isaiah 11, Jesus Himself delighted in the fear of the Lord. Isaiah 11 is a prophecy about when Jesus was come as Messiah, come to earth, and on earth Jesus delighted in the fear of God. It's a joyful thing to revere God and to be drawn to Him as He's our Father. Back to Ecclesiastes 12. So there's a fear that moves us away from God. And there's a fear and an awe and a reverence and a joy that brings us to God. The fear that moves us away from God is the one that only takes part of who he is. I know he's judge, I know he's in control and that scares me. Think of the demons. But how are we different, friends? We're his children. So we know He's sovereign, we know He's in control, we also know that He's merciful, and He's adopted us into His family, and He loves us and He keeps us. And it's this awe of Him that draws us to want more of Him, to understand Him better, to worship Him more, to enjoy Him more. That's the fear of God that the Scriptures point us to. Spurgeon said it this way, unregenerate fear, like the demons have, Unregenerate fear drives us from God. Gracious fear, the fear that comes from the grace of God inside of us. God's gracious to us, shows us God who He rightly and fully is. That gracious fear drives us to Him. Calvin said this, nothing is more powerful to overcome temptation than the fear of God, the reverence of God, the awe of God. So when you see God as shepherd, friend, guide, comforter, keeper, merciful, patient, loving. When you see what God has done in His Son, to His Son, on our behalf, that's meant to draw our affections toward Him so that we go to Him all the more. And when we do that, guess what starts to go away? Sin. Sin. The people that fight sin best are the ones that enjoy God most. You could say it that way. You enjoy Him. You're in awe of Him. You love Him. You talk to Him. You're drawn to Him. And then sin gets put in front of you, temptation put in front of you. I don't want any of that. I'm too enamored with Him. That's why the commands are given together. Fear God and keep His commandments. One comes before the other. Fear God and you will be able to keep his commandments. Fear God and that will fuel you to keep his commandments. Anytime someone's in constant disobedience, there's a worship problem at the beginning of all of that. Enjoy the Lord, revere him, be in awe of his goodness, and keep his commandments. Now, Solomon refers to God as shepherd in verse 11. And the Old Testament does refer to God as the shepherd of his people. So God is a shepherd, and the Old Testament saints knew that. The people of Israel knew that. But there's more truth that came after Solomon about God's shepherding, isn't there? Jesus Christ came to earth, and the author of Hebrews says that when we see Jesus, we are seeing God, and he, Jesus, in the flesh, has made God known to us, understandable to us all the more. God wasn't just unable to be seen on top of a mountain. In the times of Old Testament Israel, God came down to show us more, in a more detailed way what he was like by becoming man, Jesus Christ. And so when we see Jesus, we see God in a whole new light, and we learn all the more about this great God of ours. And Jesus comes and says things like this, John 10. You can listen or turn there if you'd like. John 10. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy, talking about the false teachers, failed leadership of Israel. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Remember when I told you Solomon wants us to know that God's a God of joy, God cares about our joy in him. God's a God of delight. Look at what Jesus said when he came. I came that they have, may have life and have it abundantly. Same thing, surprise, surprise. Jesus says the same thing that Solomon does. God's behind this writing. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Now, Solomon didn't talk about that. From Solomon's pen, we know that the shepherd is for our joy. Jesus comes and says, the shepherd is for your joy, and let me do it even better, and I came to lay down my life for the sheep. The shepherd just doesn't come to give the sheep joy. The shepherd is sacrificed for the joy of the sheep, for the good of the sheep. That is Jesus. Jesus didn't just come to give us a great life. He suffered and died and received the life we really should have, the punishment of God, so that we would have abundant life. I'm the good shepherd, Jesus says, and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. That's the shepherd behind the pen of Solomon, behind the book of Ecclesiastes. So there's a decision here to make moving forward. For the rest of our lives, will we open a book like Ecclesiastes, or Proverbs, or Mark, or Numbers, or Philippians? Will we come to God's word knowing that it's meant to bring us joy and it's for our good and it's for life because we know that there's a shepherd behind that. And it's a shepherd who died for us, paid the penalty for our sins, gives us life, seen in His resurrection, will we come to the Scriptures, will we come to God's Word, will we come to God's truth knowing this is who's behind this book, and He loves me, and I'm in awe of Him, and I therefore love to do what He says and want to do what He says, want to follow Him? Or will the final verse of Ecclesiastes, the warning, be something that we don't heed. God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. See, it's one thing to know that God is a shepherd, but it's a whole other thing altogether to know that he is your shepherd and you're safe in his hands. If you want to be a sheep that runs from the good shepherd, know that God will bring every deed into judgment, with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Right after Jesus came and said that he was the good shepherd, he said this. He went to a different setting. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter and Jesus was walking in the temple. So it's, John has moved us to a different setting, but Jesus is still gonna refer to himself as shepherd. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, the Messiah, the one to fix everything, if you are that person, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. He's been plain. Friends, the book of Ecclesiastes has been plain to you. The gospel that we sing through, walk through, teach through every Sunday has been plain to you. There's not more information to be known. I told you and you do not believe the works I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you're not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. If you're a wandering sheep, I pray that you would come back to the shepherd who gives you words for your own delight, gives you words that are sometimes hard and prod, and gives you the ultimate call to revere him and trust in his, and obey his commandments. Trust in who the shepherd is for you, trust in, who, in what he offers. I, I want to close by pointing you to one final thing. Solomon's referred to God in Ecclesiastes. He's referred to the creator in Ecclesiastes. He did that in our last passage. And now at the very end, he refers to God as shepherd. It's one thing for us to know that God is God, which speaks of his sovereignty and his rule. It's another thing to know him as creator. He's the originator, so therefore we're under that. We should adhere to him. He's in charge, not us. But Solomon doesn't end his book there. He also tells us that God is shepherd-like. And in knowing about a shepherd, we know about a God who cares and guides for his sheep's good. See how Solomon's taken us through the character of God throughout this book. He's God. Know that. He's creator. How are you living in light of you being the creature and he being the creator? But also know The friend. He's a shepherd, and he's even a shepherd that dies for the sheep. So for you to wander off at the end of the book of Ecclesiastes, at the end of a presentation about God as shepherd in John 10, for you to wander from there, where are you going? This is the one to go to and be in awe of and to enjoy. Revere God and keep his commandments. Let's pray. Father, thank you for such a helpful book. Father, thank you for being behind the pen of Solomon. Holy Spirit, we praise you for your authorship of this book. It has challenged us, it has encouraged us, it has motivated us, and we praise you for it. We pray that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven because of what this book has taught us. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.
1: Pastor Andrew, how do I in my life practice the exercise of listening and taking advice for imperfect people? How do I do
0: trust? That's good. Um, I'm guessing that question came from chapter 7. Yeah. <laughs> I'm guessing that came from chapter 7. Um, I referred to that earlier. Uh, It's better to hear the rebuke of the wise than the song of fools, so the importance of hearing. I think I talked about that in that sermon, spent time clarifying that. Solomon said wise, rebukes of the wise. This person is saying, how do I hear from imperfect people? Those are two different categories, so I think it's important to say, we're trying to follow the biblical categories here, so every wise person is imperfect. Solomon, Me, (laughs) you, every wise person is imperfect. But the Bible doesn't say take wisdom from perfect people. It says wise people. So I would be careful about um, changing the words of Scripture and even how we think through this. Uh, But I would say to this person, you don't need to hear from everybody. There's ample biblical evidence of not listening to fools. Uh, but the Bible also does call us to listen to wisdom, and there are exhortations, as you know, in the New Testament about speaking wisdom to one another, Colossians 3. So I would say that part of our Christian life is to learn from wise and godly people. Well, I don't know any wise and godly people. Uh, I think you do. I just think you might not be wanting to listen, well, or hopefully, hopefully you will soon. Maybe you're moving to an area and you really don't know any in that area. Hopefully, you would soon, but look for wise and godly people and and listen to them. It is a part of growing in our Christian life. Solomon uh, really warns about not listening to wisdom, even if it pokes and prods. So, uh, I would encourage you to not have the standard be perfection, because then you don't listen to anybody, and that's not what the Bible has for us, but to listen to to wise people. And there's a lot of in today's day and age, I, I know I'm going on here, but um, sometimes there's this idea that I'll listen to people who don't know me. I listen to this pastor online, listen to this person on podcast, I, I read these books, but, but if a pastor, a small group leader, if a friend, a spouse weighs in on something, they don't know what they're talking about. Please be careful about that. Uh, the online preacher doesn't know you, and so it's, it can be very safe for you. Um, but I believe the scriptures point us to uh, being corrected uh, sometimes and encouraged and helped and commended as well. Uh, that's, that's a full scriptural idea of hearing things. We need the correction. We need the encouragement. So uh, don't make perfection the standard. Then you won't listen to anybody uh, other than yourself. Um, but pursue wisdom is what I would say
1: this Yeah, yeah. Sometimes we don't like that. Yeah. like the way it
0: feels for someone to tell us, like, you
1: know
0: about this? Right. We should
1: do that differently. But it is helpful. Way, you minutes. So okay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Second <laughs> question. Given the state of Solomon in the first Kings of 11, verse 6 and 9 specifically, do you believe Solomon's redeemed mm-hmm. especially be considering
0: That's another good question. I I will say I don't believe that that is a question. It's a good question. It's one that we all have. I don't think it's a question that Scripture feels like it has to answer for us. Um, There are some things, we have lots of questions about a lot of things in the Christian life. There are things the Bible calls us to believe and to know, and there are other things we just don't. Um, But that passage was referring to First Kings 11, I'll, I'll just read that to you. Um, so Solomon did, was, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not wholly follow the Lord as David, his father, had done. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Molech. Horrible things happened because of the god Molech. And Solomon built a high place for Molech. Um, the abomination of the Ammonites, Ammonites, and on the mountain east of Jerusalem. And so he did for all his foreign wives, he made offerings and sacrifice to their gods. That's not a good conclusion about Solomon's reign, (laughs) about his life. Um, But at the same time, is that enough for me to say, well, then Solomon's in hell right now? Uh, I I don't know. I think that's the final um, statement that Kings makes about Solomon. Uh, Some have argued that Ecclesiastes is his repentance. We know for sure that Ecclesiastes was written after many of his sins. He highlights them in the book of Ecclesiastes. I lean toward Ecclesiastes being more repentant Solomon, but at the end of the day, I don't know. I will say this maybe last final thing. Um, If you ever read through your Bible and you read the book of Kings and then you read Chronicles, you think, why are both these in here? I mean, they're kind of of parallel and similar. The book of Kings is rehearsing the history of the kings in a negative light. And the book of Chronicles, which is actually the final book of the Old Testament in the original way it was arranged, the book of Chronicles gives more hope. So this final statement about Solomon's reign is in that depressing Kings book. And so it might just be more of look at what a failure these kings are. And Chronicles is, look at what a failure these kings are, and there's hope. And so it's no surprise that the critique on Solomon's reign would come in kings. Um, But at the end of the day, I don't know. Um, I think it's Matthew 12, Jesus says, talks about the wisdom of Solomon and the Queen of Sheba coming, and says, one greater than Solomon is here. When Jesus refers to people that kind of came before him, John the Baptist, they're often... They're often people who did something good, and now there's a greater one that's here, Jesus himself. And so Solomon is referred to in that way. So Solomon was great, had a lot of wisdom, one greater than Solomon's here. So I lean toward we'll see him in heaven, but I don't know at the end of the day, and I don't think that the scripture is trying to be clear that we know the answer right now. What is clear is that we should benefit from Ecclesiastes. So you might think, I don't like Solomon. I can't stand him. I think First Kings 11 is the final uh, Statement on his life. Therefore, I'm not going to listen to Ecclesiastes. I, I would warn you against that. So, yeah.
1: How about Saul, Samson, and Judas? <laughs> just you five minutes. <laughs>
0: Let's go to that that one.
1: Pastor Andrew said last week, when we die, our spirit is with the Lord; our bodies will just stay and turn into dust. However, then he talks about the transfiguration when they saw Elijah and Moses in bodily form, getting close. He also spoke about the second coming when we receive a new body. So, my questions are how is it that Elijah and Moses are in bodily form before the second coming, and that they still have their old bonds? Is there a chance that we do have bonds in heaven before the second coming, or what does it mean to be a spirit?
0: Does that That's an outstanding question. I, it really is. Uh, all, all three of these are great. Um, I, I, did, I did talk about that last week, um, and I did make the statement, and I stand by it, uh, that we are not embodied. Old Testament saints, people who have died before us, my grandma, my grandpa, your friends, your family members, they are not embodied right now. They are with God, Jesus telling the thief, today you'll, today you'll be with me in paradise. Um, David, the psalmist, knew that he would wake and see God. He would be with God. He would know God. Um, the, the, the New Testament scriptures are pointing us to a day in the future when we we'll receive glorified bodies, a, a day when our spirits who are alive, always alive, will be embodied again with perfect bodies fit for a new heavens and a new earth. Um, the Scriptures point to that. That is clear, and I'll read that in a moment. What, what becomes kind of a question is this person's question. It's a great observation. In the Transfiguration, Moses and Elijah are there. What's up with that? Apparently, we do have bodies. You're wrong, Pastor Andrew. Well, hold on. <laughs> um, there's another passage that talks about bodies coming out of tombs before the end of time also. When Jesus died, Matthew 27 tells us that some bodies of saints came out of the tombs. So I think that what happened on the Mount of Transfiguration and what happened when Jesus died with those bodies coming out was a preview, this is an important word, a preview of what's coming in the future. Think of the Transfiguration itself. Uh, The three disciples went on the mountain, and Jesus was there with them, and he showed them his His glorified state his victorious state this is what he's like glorified now why did that happen and why is it in the in the books of the bible that it's in so again you ask me one question you get a lot here sorry <laughs> matthew mark and luke talk about the transfiguration what the disciples saw on that mountain All of them have it at the end of Jesus, at the end of sections where Jesus says, I'm going to suffer and die. He actually says the Son of Man is going to suffer and die. And I've told you this before, when you think Son of Man, you think strong, victorious conquer. They knew that Jesus was the Son of Man. Yes, we're on the right side, said Peter. You're the Christ, Son of the living God, he says in Matthew. Yes, I'm on the right team. Right after that, Jesus says, the Son of Man is going to suffer and die. And Peter's like, hold on a second. And the disciples don't get that. But then he takes it a step further. And if anyone would come after me, be my follower, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. You might die too. That's the context where then he then brings them to the mountain. Because at that point, if I were there, I'd be like, oh no, I was all in on this guy. I don't like the sound of this. So he brings them to the mountain and shows them what the future will be like in his glorified state gives him a preview of it. That's enough for me to lift my head and say, okay, I did pick the right guy. I'm with you. And he showed that this is what the prophets of old held to. They knew about a coming victory, Moses, Elijah. So Jesus didn't then come down the mountain showing in white in that glorified state, did he? His glorified body was received after he died and was resurrected. So that's why I think that Matthew 27 and the Transfiguration and all three of those Gospels are previews of something. So I don't think they're to be taken as, ah, they've got a body right then and there. These are previews of something coming later. And what is crystal clear is about when we get those bodies. 1 Corinthians 15, I just turned to it here, 1 Corinthians 15, 51 and 52. Listen to this. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed new body, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and then the dead will be raised imperishable. That's our new bodies. And we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on the immortality. The Bible connects the resurrected bodies with the last trumpet when Jesus returns again not when we physically die on this earth prior to his second coming. So that'd be my answer there. So I understand the question. I think it's a good one. What's with Moses and Elijah? And I would even add what's with the people that came out of the tombs, Matthew 27. Those are previews of something that's coming later. Think about Jesus' whole life. It was just a bunch of previews. Like when you tell people today, Jesus has the power to heal diseases. Why doesn't he heal mine? Because he doesn't heal everyone's. That was a preview of what he can do and what he will do finally one day. Uh, all of the accounts of Jesus, to some extent, are previews of what will happen one day. I think this is another example of that. So seeing the bodies after they died, is that the way they all are right now? No, I think that's a preview of what's coming. So that'd be my answer there. Again, thank you. That's a great question. Thanks for
1: all your questions. <laughs> we continue to do this as Pastor Anthony is preaching to the books of the Bible. We're starting first 1 John. And uh, we'll continue. So we'll keep providing a few code for you as well as the link and detail of the bulletin. And as kind of right after he's preaching to folks, please feel free to submit your questions. And every six weeks or so, we'll be up here answering your questions. Would so, you like to close it over? Yeah,
0: yeah. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the clarity with which it gives us on the things that you want us to know and understand. Um, Pray that we'd be able able to fear you and keep your commandments, that um, you know that this has been a prayer of mine throughout the number of months for this church, that there would be a certain awe that we have for you that enables us to love one another better, enables us to be patient, enables us to view our money rightly, enables us to view relationships rightly. Um, Lord, make this congregation increasingly awestruck by not just your power, but also your goodness. We pray this in Christ's name, amen. Your loved and dismissed.